Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. What does it mean to be a bloke today? And what do we want it to look like tomorrow? The tide is changing for men, young and old, and the outdated stereotype is leaving some of our mates, dads, sons, uncles, teammates, workmates and brothers stranded without the tools for a healthy life. This week's uh, guest, Tom Harkin, is one of Australia's preeminent advanced facilitators dedicated to reinventing masculinity by challenging traditional stereotypes and training our emotional muscles. As founder of Tomorrow Architects, a pioneering consultancy breaking ground in behavioural change, leadership development and organisational transformation, Tom has had a direct impact on over 150,000 executives across the globe, including celebrities, professional athletes in elite sport and teenagers. Tom joins us to share what boys and men across Australia have taught him about gaining cut through with mainstream males on topics that are usually taboo in our sporting clubs, schools, workplaces and communities. Tom also delves into the importance of a no-holds-barred conversations around the state of man, facing the stats and creating room to break the stereotype. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning into another episode. Today it gives me great pleasure to introduce Mr. Tom Harkin. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where were you from? How did you get into what you're doing? Yeah, so I grew up in Frankston at the end of the train line, Victoria, down Gateway to the Mornington Peninsula. Yeah, travelled through there once. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's not a bad place. It gets a bad rap, but it's actually not too bad down by the beach and all of that kind of stuff. We live there now with our family, like a little, little bit further down the peninsula, but same area. So, yeah, I grew up down there, went to Frankston High School, I was lucky enough that when I was about 17, I met Jim Steins, who is an ex-AFL footballer. The Gale Talk Irish language schools had a big impact on him as a youth in Ireland. And when he came over here, he, he did quite well in Australia and wanted to give back to the community. And so he saw a gap in that Gale Talk experience that, that he got. And so he started the Reach Foundation and he walked into my school, I would have been in year 10, and he, in 90 minutes or so, created an environment of authenticity that I hadn't experienced in all of my schooling. And I just capt- captured me. Like, I loved it. Everybody in the room loved it. Um, but I was like, that's what I want to do. Up until then, I'd be like, maybe I want to be a concierge because I'd seen the movie and it, it looked good. Um, or maybe a chef. And, yeah. and so... That was the sliding doors moment where I was like, nah, this is what I want to do. 
So at the age of 17 or thereabouts, mm. you, that's when you first met him, when he came in to do a presentation for Reach Out? Yeah, uh, the Reach Foundation. The Reach Foundation, Yeah, sorry. yeah. So, and then it was a very young organisation at the time and I, I just grabbed hold of him and didn't let go. I just wanted to be around it, just pestered them, picked up the phone nonstop, how do I, you know, come out and do workshops and all that kind of stuff. And, and a few people saw um some potential in me and uh yeah it began about 10 years i was with that organization running a ridiculous amount of workshops across the country because it was a young organization there was a lot of demand and so i found myself out on the road on my own you know up to 300 workshops a year and wow yeah it was some experience um and and i ever since then I think, you know, a lot of millennials change their professions, you know, what, 17 times or something they say. Yeah. For me, the context has shifted over time, but the job is, is um, other than my wife, you know, the, the one love. Yeah. Um, I think I'll be at it for the rest of my life because I just find humans so incredibly interesting. And when you get them in a room and they feel safe enough to, to be authentic and have the conversations they really want to have, there's nothing much that beats that. So the curiosity around this when – his name was Jim, right? Jim, yeah. Jim, when Jim came in and presented, all of a sudden something inside you thought, well, hang on, this, is, this resonates with you. Was it because it resonated with you or because you felt like this is something that is needed at that age? No, it was very selfish. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think at the time I was a kid, it was selfish before it was – it was for others, yeah. Like most teenagers, I, just, I, I wanted to fit, I wanted to belong, I wanted all those things. And what I saw in the room, there's a few things. One, it was incredibly entertaining. Like I was like, this is, I'm like hearing about the lives of my peer group and it's fascinating. And I, I felt my judgments of them being flipped upside down, like literally in the moment kind of going, I've judged that person, I've teased them out loud in front of groups and suddenly I'm humbled by the lives that they're living. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, like they're like a giant, you know, that what they go home to and how they manage to keep rocking up doing this stuff. So I felt ashamed. I felt like I wanted to change things. I, you know, felt inspired by my peer group. I felt those things. But if I'm to be honest, the reason why I pursued it was more that I, f I thought that's the key to living more of my life. The more that I found out about the size of lives that people lived, the more that the stuff that I was most worried about felt insignificant not insignificant but it, but in proper contrast like who i'm getting with on the weekend and what group i'm in and what people think about whether i'm cool or not cool it just didn't matter as much as what i was hearing about like wow the world's big and lives are big and people are living these kind of pretty heroic things and so don't sweat the small stuff and it gave me more courage and it gave me more confidence and then and then when i started to get the things that i really wanted in my life and I started having the confidence to walk towards the girl or walk towards the opportunity that I wanted or, you know, just feeling more like, yeah, I know who I am and I know what I want and I'm, and I'm able to go after it. I started to feel this deep empathy for other young people that I heard saying the stories that I'd been saying a few years before, like I'm ugly or I can't do that. Or, and I, I found myself going, that's, that's bullshit and it's not fair. You know, nobody should have to miss out. We're only here once. 
And so that then sparked this passion in me for others and, and to be honest, my best self. You mm. know, I think a lot of people could say that. I've never, never felt prouder of myself than when I've been in service of others. I've never had more courage, you know. Mm. I've, I've been chasing that ever since I was a late teenager. Mate, to be to in grade ten to to be able to know what you want to do. I mean that. I mean it's sometimes it doesn't come to people to late in their life. So it's incredible mm. that it came to you so quickly. But what a powerful presentation it must have been. If we go into it, is it predominantly male based stuff that you've been doing historically since since that got your interest? No. So it started with um, with just teenage work. Okay. It actually started with primary work. So the way that we were trained up in that organisation was always to start with what was called reach rookies, which was, you know, grade fives and sixes. Okay. And then it kind of evolved and you kind of moved up through the levels. But it was with, it was co-ed groups. Okay. Mainly, it was all co-ed groups. And then I had this kind of passion where I said to Jim, like, listen, I think something's needed for for the guys um, and because of the guys that I'd grown up with and that's where the passion came from to create something for for men, for boys. And have you seen the, you know how you talk about getting in the room with people and being able to have that authenticity mm. amongst the peer group. Have you seen since you've moulded that program or created the program for males specifically mm. to be a lot more effective faster at generating that than perhaps it was when it was co-education like do you find a difference in the way they learn the languaging mm. for boys as opposed or, or young men as opposed to young women yes and no um the yes is that i think that the male stereotype is really powerful and so limited uh, i mean you'd argue the female stereotype is as well but you know, for guys, you know, you're not supposed to be invulnerable. You're not. You're supposed to be tough. You're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to be all those things. You think that you're doing that so that you fit in, so that your mates like you, but also you think that you're doing it so that the girls like you. And so to sit in a co-ed environment and, like, I remember um, I was a small kid in school and I, I gave a lot of shit because I wanted to fit in. I still remember acutely the first time, like, I was throwing water. It was summer. And I was in the kind of annex and I was throwing water around and I got this kid and he had a pretty tough life and he was a tough kid. He was a man child, you know, this guy. And some water dropped on him and he turned around and, and roundhouse kicked me like straight in the ribs. But the rage, it's actually more so the rage that came out of him and it just kind of cut through me. It shocked me and I started crying, you know, and... And then I sat down to this box and I'll never forget all the girls coming in around me, you know, looking after me. And I just felt humiliated. I just didn't want, I don't want you looking after me. I don't want to be looked after. And this is, makes it worse, you know, it doesn't make it better. And I think that that lives inside a lot of boys in co-ed environments that, that are wanting to seem, and I'm talking heterosexual boys here, but also homosexual boys, you know, wanting to live up to that stereotype in front of these people um, that you want to be attractive to. And so that it adds this extra element. So I think if guys are in a room together, what we've found is they will, if they take the risk, it cascades more quickly 
because they go, oh, it's safe, you know. That guy spoke all right, that went all right, okay, we're in and it warms up and then suddenly they're all talking with emotion. I think that if women are in the room, then it, it adds this extra layer of resistance that you do need to work through. The, the no part is you always want this stuff to be integrated into their lives. So if they haven't done it in the room with women present, then it because it risks being something that they just do with the boys. Yeah. And it's like, no, nah, it's also good to do it with the girls. Yeah. And, and when we think about the stereotypes of blokes, mm. how young are we starting to see these things that are creeping in subtly, mm. but they're actually creeping into everyday lives, lives of people, whether they're preschool, whether yeah. they're with their friends, playgroups. What's yeah. your experience with that? I mean, there's probably a couple of answers to that. The first one is how early does it begin? It begins before they're born because, you know, you're telling people I'm having a boy, I'm having a girl and the clothes are already being purchased and the toys are already being purchased to line up with that construct. So at what point do they start presenting behaviour that shows us that the conditioning is having an impact on the way they view themselves? You know, we were just talking about that a moment ago before we started this podcast. I have a one-year-old Augie and a four-and-a-half-year-old River and seeing it with Riv, you know, we've tried to create an environment where, you know, he was right into Frozen and all that kind of stuff and I still remember my own resistance we're at at an airport in greece and i took him to the toy shop to get something and he was like i want anna i want the anna doll with the hairbrush and the you know and i I just instinctively pointed him away from that to to the superheroes and and the boy toys and things like that and he was like no i want the frozen and took me a little while to realize what are you doing yeah and go yeah no, actually, and I actually had convinced him. He was he was about to walk, and I was like, hang on a second. So I took it back. It's like, no, you want this one, don't you? And he's like, yeah, 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 I want that one. So we got him the Arnadol. But then just witnessing, you know, the pressures that sat around that, you know, the people in public who kind of made comments and things like that. So he came home, at, you know, I think he might have been two years old. He started speaking very early, and, and he was all already on things like, you know, mum can only be pink Power Ranger. And we've had many fierce debates yeah. <laughs> in the car about, no, I want to be the pink one. And mum wants to be the blue one. Oh, but that doesn't work. And you can see his little mind just kind of being broken by, by the influences. So it starts just ridiculously early. It's so easy to do though, isn't it? Like for, especially, you don't realise it, but generationally, I guess it's just come through with, the culture and the way we've grown up as well. Yep. That it's it's sort of instinctive. It is. And, and yeah. you're, if you don't catch yourself, like you mentioned, I mean, you can very easily just steer them to the blue shirt instead yep. of the other ones or whatever it is. Or the That's it. What's more than easy, it's, as you said, it's instinctive. And if, it's, if you don't do the hard work of interfering with it, and disrupting the norm then it it is just instinctive it will just continue and let me be clear like there are times where i say to river now's not the time for tears like i i will still say effectively don't cry in this moment um there are a lot of moments where i say mate how are you feeling and it's okay to cry and it's okay to but there are times where he's crying there are times where (laughs) where he's he's crying doesn't get his way. Yeah, it's manipulative. It's like he's bringing it on. I'm bringing this one on because <laughs> I want this thing. And I'm like, hey, listen, you know, there are times where... So I think that there... 
we've got a f- the full spectrum of the human condition and all of our archetypes and all of our ways of of, of operating and the male stereotype of stoicism and sucking up your emotions and getting the job done being the rock and all of those things are i believe incredibly healthy and very valuable and needed in our society and in our lives we've got you know big lives they're ups and downs however if it's the only only tools that you've got it's not it's it's not conducive to a good full life um so it's about choice you know Mm. so i don't mind um riv living out some of the stereotype and loving you know wrestling on the back couch in the lounge room and all of that kind of stuff but i also want him to be able to cry and emote when he needs to and to reach out for help when he can't do it all himself because nobody can do this big life all on their own no no, and I'm keen to explore that too. Tell us firstly, though, how did Tomorrow Man come about? Mm. How, how did it? Because obviously you're working with the Reach Foundation. Yep. Then you went in to do some more executive yep. coaching. But I mean, at, at what point did you? How did yeah, tell everyone about yeah, Tomorrow Man? Yeah, it's a good question. So, really, where it came from? Like it be, you know, I I feel like it began when I was 17, <clears> and I was, you know, witnessing the experiences of the guys around me in school. Then I got this this opportunity to reflect on life a lot more through the Reach Foundation and learnt the skill of building content, facilitation, all of that kind of stuff. And then there was a point there where I went to gym and I said, I think we need something just for guys. Um, and so that was built out. And then I started realising, you know what, I, I want to do this the rest of my life. There was a lot of people, there was about 40 people every year that came through the Reach Foundation to train as facilitators. About four of them, on average, did the whole four years and became an accredited facilitation. It was a pretty long journey of a lot of self-development and, and, and a lot of training. And I kind of said to him, like, listen, I'm creating content, but I actually want to do this for the rest of my life. And what young people inspiring young people was the motto. What, what happens when I'm not a young person, you know? Do I get to take this stuff? And he said, listen, anything that you create, you, you know, we're not going to stop you from having positive impact in the world. So... I went up to board member at the Reach Foundation and, and I was there during Jim, unfortunately, got a very serious cancer, lost th- that battle with cancer and died. And I, I did as much as I could to repay him, really, and played some, some of his leadership roles for a while. And then I needed to mourn, like I'd lost one of my mentors and I, 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 needed, I needed to go away and I needed to, you know, find out who I was and you know and so reach was commercially funded largely jim was a pretty successful businessman he had a good profile and so i had this opportunity to get exposed to a lot of corporate organizations and i was thrown in as you know i was like well this is what we do with young people maybe it'll work for you guys and it was very kind of shake shake the room up a bit and get honest in these sterile corporate environments but over time i started to realize hey this is needed here genuinely needed you know, more human interaction, more emotional intelligence, the capacity to have better conversations and the like. And so I was doing this little word of mouth kind of leadership consultancy. And then Jen Cummins had become a friend of mine and she had uh, produced shows like Life at Five and Life at Seven, Life at Nine. And she periodically came to me as a facilitator, somebody interested in the human condition and said, hey, I've got a TV show idea, what do you think? And one day she called me and she said, listen, I've got this idea for a show about men. 
and her pre-producer got in touch and we had a catch up and spoke about what their idea was for the show and I really didn't like it at the time, the original concept. It was based on previous concepts that they had done. It was kind of taking 10 men uh, that were in dysfunctional situations and, and effectively helping them save themselves in a way. And I just felt like it was going to preach to the converted and talk to people that care about men and professionals that want to help men, but it wouldn't actually talk to men themselves and it wouldn't cut through to the mainstream males that I thought really needed to be to be captured um, and engaged is probably the better word, engaged. And so they were amazing and they went, well, what would you want to see? And what do you think mainstream males would be up for? And so we started kind of building this concept and and... And I wasn't supposed to be on the show, but in the end, they came down. They saw they they got the show bought by ABC. They came down, and we had a coffee, and they said, "Oh, you know, here's here's the one pager of our you know our three episodes. What do you think?" And I read it, and I was in there a couple of times, and and we had a big debate because I was like, oh, "I don't think I want to do that because it's a pretty sacred environment that's created when when you start these workshops." And I don't, I would, I didn't believe at the time it could be captured by cameras. And so anyway, Man Up was made, um, those workshops featured, particularly the workshop at Belgala Secondary School, and the phone just started blowing up. I remember the day before it screened, we had a breakfast in Melbourne, uh, Jen, Gus and I and a few others, and, and Jen said, oh, have you got your website set up? And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, you know, I don't think you understand what's about to happen. And I said, oh, I don't. She said, have you... If you turned your Facebook profiles to private, I was like, no, I don't know. What? No, I haven't done any of this. And overnight it did kind of really kick off. And I think what it spoke to was in that episode, particularly episode two, people get to see the secret life of teenage boys. And I don't think many people get an insight into that. And the secret life of teenage boys is incredible. Like they are just so emotionally alive, expressive, articulate. It's amazing. It's actually amazing. And and, and I think that what happened was – People were going, all right, well, I want that for our guys. And how do we get that? Because they can often seem that they're so hard to get through to. And so everybody's looking for a way. And, and that's really where it began. I was like, listen, we've got the content. We've got this huge platform that we've been gifted, really. And, and I know people that can deliver this work and deliver it well. And so initially it just became, well, let's meet the need. These people are calling up and they want this. Well, well let's meet that need. And then it evolved into an organization and like I often say if five or six years ago you said to me hey you know we're gonna set up this organization with 25 people in it blah blah do you want that I would have said no straight up definitely not I like facilitating I love being around people I don't want to run run an organization but it's naturally evolved day by day and it feels like the right thing to do it feels like there is a huge need to meet the mainstream male and to engage them in a healthy preventative way that leads to better help seeking when it comes to professional services and the like when they hit the challenging periods of their lives and so each day the organization changes and grows tomorrow woman came about you know because it was like we can't just be running this for the guys and not including the women and Let's be honest, more and more we've realised the male perspective needs to include far more of the female perspective because they're often oblivious to the, to the experience of women and the impact that men have on them. 
and now tomorrow people just feels like it's ready to exist which is a reflection on what has been the construct of the relationship between men and women what have we inherited and what do we actually want to continue and i think we need to reinvent the model um, like we need to reinvent an archaic version of masculinity and an archaic version of femininity we need to reinvent the model of the relationship and we need to provide environments for people to train the emotional muscle that they're going to need to have a, a healthy relationship with the other sex particularly when it crosses into intimate places i mean who would have thought it would have ended up well not ended but you would have come to where you are right now i mean it's incredible that the journey and the way it's taken and it's evolved yeah. over the years when was your first exposure to the reach foundation with jim what year was that uh so it was it was 2000 well it, it's an intro it would have been 2000 okay yeah it would have been so, 2000 would so have been a bit of part of 20 years you've been at this yep for now you've obviously experienced a lot of interaction yep with boys we're talking predominantly though teenagers is that correct well no not anymore well yeah actually, sorry yes 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 70 percent of our work is with teenage males yes. and a large you know the majority of my experience in the first 10 years of my facilitation was with teenagers okay um the latter half the last 10 years would be I've, I've been working more with adults than i have with young people and so it's balanced out a bit and we pride ourselves on working with the entire age demographic from yeah. about 15 upwards and understanding the whole life cycle of a male. So when we're working with teenagers, we're kind of saying to the guys, hey, this is what's ahead for you guys. Here are the big markers in a life that you'll have and let's make sure that you've got the toolkit for it. When you ask us to do the exercise where you close your eyes, take you back to your 16-year-old self mm -hmm. and think about what were things that were important to you then. Yeah, what you wanted, what you wanted. What you're worried about. If you'd have done that for a 10-year-old, would it have been different? Mm. I don't know. The only reason, because when we did the exercise in the mm. in your discussion, yep. the really the key things, and I was I was spot on with this as well, mm. is what I was thinking was fitting in and mm. belonging. Yep. Um, you know, ex many expectations of those around me. Sure. Which is basically belonging to, to yep. the group. Yep. Was that be true for the for younger people as well? <sighs> And I don't know at what age it would change, but I... Yeah, I think that there is a transition point where the family falls from being the primary, you know, where you want to fit and belong, to being a bit secondary. And I, th I think that that's also, you know, case by case. If you're lucky enough to have a stable home environment, you don't need to think about it so much, whether you fit and whether you belong, whether you're safe in that place. And so then you start to focus more on my peer group. Who am I? You know, like, and, you know, I love Joseph Campbell's stuff and some of his, you know, work on mythology and, you know, all of the first, you know, religions and cultures of Earth and the stories they told each other. He talks a lot about, you know, the teenager growing up and needing to destroy their parents, you know, view of reality in a way and, and break, break that relationship so that they can reform it as an adult, a peer-to-peer -peer adult, um, and, and kind of grow out of that. And I think a bit of that happens. I think you kind of, you go into adolescence and you're a bit like suddenly hate everything your parents have done and do and say, and all you want is to be around your peer group and be, you know, belong with them. And so I think at, at 10, you know, I can only 
say what I think and what I think is that probably the family would have a bigger role in that belonging and fitting and feeling safe than it does for a teenager that starts to really fixate big time on their peer group. So what is it that happens when we're teenagers? Why are we seeing such a crucial time when they're that 15, 16, 17 years of age Mm. where we see them start to be withdrawn, disconnected from a family sense, I guess? Yep. Listen, again, as a facilitator, most of my knowledge has been built through out there working with people and 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 seeing what works and and learning from the people that I'm working with and so I'm sure that there's a lot of science behind it um, I think that the teenage years are critical for the reasons I just said I think that you start to reflect back on okay well do I agree with my family anymore do I want to be like them do I want to be like my mum and my dad and who do I want to be and what is the ver- and am I valued you know am I valuable you know, do I have value as a person? We don't know who we are. So we're, we're breaking one idea of ourselves, our family idea. We've got nothing to replace it with necessarily. And we're trying to work it out, Lord of the Flies, with a bunch of other teenagers. And at the moment, it's a really interesting environment to be growing up. I think everybody can go on about, you know, oh, it's harder for teenagers now because they're, you know, they don't leave school, you know, it follows them home through socials and all of that kind of stuff. The thing that worries me most about what goes on for teenagers today is the fact that they don't need to deal as much as previous generations have had to with face-to-face discomfort, being with another human being in person in discomfort. And so when they bully, they bully through their devices. I still remember being in a room. I was in a school in Queensland the first time that a, it was a co-ed workshop and this young girl was crying. It had gotten to this point where we were talking about the truth of the peer dynamic that was playing out at the school and she broke down and, and she was, it was heartbreaking. She, she was really suffering and I said, what's going on for you? And she said, you know, she talked about how horrible it had been at school, that she had been bullied, that she was an outcast and it got to the point where she said – they told me to kill myself and and they told me, and trigger warning here, but they hoped that I got pack and you can kind of finish the sentence. Like horrific. I got emotional. I remember getting emotional and being horrified. I was like, it was like it broke my heart hearing that. And what she had done, she had ended up, you know, walking to school and throwing herself in front of a car. And as horrifying as that was over the years to come, it became incredibly frequent to hear those two things used as taunts towards, uh, and it had it it had it had uh, had a positive correlation with technology and the use of phones. So mobile phones getting into hands. So you look at a generation now where you don't bully face to face, so you so you don't feel discomfort for another person when you hurt them, but you also don't pick up in person. I don't mean pick up, you know, you don't start intimate relationships in person. You start it through text, sexting sometimes before you're even in person. And then there's what's going on in the media today. You know, Chanel Contos, you know, launched her piece and everybody's putting on these harrowing accounts of of teenage sexual abuse that, that's going on. It's horrifying but not surprising to me. Because when you move into the intimate relationship, there's never a time where you need more communication, more emotional intelligence, the ability to know when it's not feeling good or somebody's disconnected from the situation or isn't liking it or whatever it might be. 
And if you haven't built up emotional muscle for dialoguing when discomfort is high and you're with another human being in a relationship, then how do you do it at the hardest possible moment? So I think that those teenage years have always been like, you know, you look at media and art imitates life. You've got so many movies and shows about coming of age. It's a really interesting period. But at the moment, wow, the backdrop, I'm glad that I, I'm not in that time. I think it's incredibly complex to navigate for a young person. And especially for parents, I mean, trying to do their best as well. Entirely. I mean, because in the most cases, they just want what's best for their kid. Yep. And it wasn't until you said that title of that second episode i think secret life of teenage boys mm. almost like they have to be secret to behave the way they want to behave but when they come home they're withdrawn mm. which seems illogical because you want them to be themselves but yep. yet they don't feel comfortable anymore no well it's interesting like even when i used to like doing a lot of the teenage work particularly we used to run camps yeah you know, weekend retreats for the reach foundation one of the common things we also did like um community nights and so you'd have five nights in a, in a you know i went to that at frankston it was the first thing that i did every wednesday night you know one of the most common things that the parents would say they'd rock up and they'd go oh thank you so much for whatever you're doing but i also want you to know we see the things that you're saying about our child and that their peers are saying about them. And it's amazing, but we don't get to see that kid. They come home and they're horrible, you know? So what's going on? Because we're hearing all this and, you know, it's such a kick in the teeth to parents because you're there doing all the rearing and all of that kind of stuff. And then they go off with the cool uncle and auntie and they be this incredible human being, but then they don't, take it home they take out the worst parts of themselves on the people that they care the most about because they know that they won't go and i think that yeah. that's a that's a tough gig as a parent it can be a really tough gig now sometimes it doesn't go that way there were people that would say everything's changed at home mm-hmm. thanks to whatever's going on in that room and what what they're exploring they're they're bringing it home we're having better conversations but never perfect so you create an environment with groups of, uh, with Tomorrow Man, with groups of males, sixteen-year-olds yep. or so. Yep. You create a safe environment. You get them to start talking about what describes a man. What's the definition of man? Yep. And you write them up, and you see how common a lot of the things you probably see around all the groups. Mm. At what point do you do when you go below the surface? All of a sudden, me and you, for instance, if I start knowing a bit more about your background and in your family and your situation, mm. perhaps your dad's sick, why all of a sudden does that make me open up to be more, well, hang on, geez, I didn't know Tom was, now I feel sorry for you, Tom, and now I understand everything I did because of the context around your situation. Mm. Is that the only link that's making them vulnerable, if that makes sense? Like, is it only the kids that come up with something like that that are creating that vulnerability no i i think that the unfortunate reality is that in a lot of peer dynamics with teenagers they don't feel safe so they are putting up a veneer and a mask and they're trying to look better than they think they are underneath and then they're playing a social game based on that so they're all judging criticizing each other and factioning and creating groups and all that kind of stuff it's it's brutal you know most people wouldn't go back to being a teenager once they're past that that phase. And so what is actually being created? And, and I've got to say, it's the same with adults. Like it's the same environment that we're creating and it's the same lack of safety and it's the same masks. I just think it's, it's heightened at that age. 
But what's happening is effectively you're creating a time capsule, like this kind of space for the length of the workshop, that if you're a skilled facilitator, you're effectively helping the whole group to go, hey, you've got control of this group. And so it's safe to do these things. Um, and then somebody takes a risk and they go, hey, I'm going to share something with you that lies underneath my mask. And the whole room knows because it's the shaky voice. It's the, you just feel, wow, they're taking a risk. The whole room goes silent. Everybody's like, oh, pin drop. This is not a moment where you just chit chat around. Like that person's doing a huge thing here. And if that then goes positively, which is really important, the responsiveness. So then saying to the boys, hey, boys, what do you think of this person? Because that person said it, but they're still going, shit, 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 shit. Like I've just destroyed my reputation here. Oh, my God, what yeah, have I done? I'm going to cop it up. I'm going to cop it. And then they hear from the guys, which is generally, mate, I have so much respect for you. That was huge what you just did. I'm amazed. Like it's incredible. I never knew that, you know. And I love that about you and I want to be there for you, you know, and all of those kind of things. And then it's a pile in, you know, because we all innately want that. We want to be connected to each other. We're social beings. We want to belong. We want to feel safe. We want to feel heard. We want to feel understood. We don't want to do it alone. So you see somebody do that and you're like, oh, I want some of what that guy's just got. You know, I've got a story too, you know. Um, and then it's one by one by yeah. one. And then at the end we often say, what's it like just being here right now? as opposed to when you first walked in. And I always say, oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's so relaxed. There's so much trust. It's such a good environment. It's just like a big breath of fresh air, like a big release exhale. And, and unfortunately, what you're saying to them is, hey, guys, this is probably not going to retain exactly this way, but you have seen the truth that lies underneath the protection that you all hold up day to day. And now you've got the opportunity to, chase out the truth more often. And when you go first, it often allows other people to go. But if they don't hear how they look when they take risks, then they won't repeat them. So let them know. If, if somebody's honest with you and you enjoyed it, you let them know. Acknowledge it. Like, oh, mate, I'm glad you said that. That was incredible. Like, as human beings, we're not amazing mind readers, you know. Right. So it's hard to care about somebody that is hiding all of themselves from you. And that, that I think is evident in a lot of men. When you lock down, you lock away your emotional life. You don't tell people what's going on inside. It's very hard to care for people like that. And so often in schools even, you find that the people are being nastiest too. You know, when they break, and often they, they will break if there's safety. They'll go, oh, okay, I don't need to fight so hard or protect so hard because there's safety right now. And it all unfolds. And then everybody's horrified by what they've done. They all say, oh, I'm so sorry. I was having, like, I, the stuff I was saying to you, I didn't think it was hurting. I didn't think, I didn't think you cared because I couldn't see and feel your hurt. But that's a big ask to say, oh, yeah, well, all you just got to do is let people know how much it's hurting you. Like, it's, it doesn't always work that way. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. Mm. And, and, I mean, you're right, because when it's not until people demask themselves and just be able to be who they really want to be, that they all of a sudden have that breath of, wow, this feels really good. Exactly. Why am I putting up all these fronts yeah. when I obviously don't need to for everybody to like who I am? When you, when you asked us to do that exercise and fitting in and belonging were the two most common things, you then said to what? Mm. 
Like what is it you're trying to fit into? Mm. What is it you want to belong to? Is it the case that we don't often think about what it is in fact we want to belong to? Like we don't define it intentionally. It's more done as a reactionary thing to who we're spending time with. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, growing up is such a complicated, you know, pathway that it's not until later years that you have the self-awareness to be able to objectify what is subjective, you know, up until that point. Like, uh, hang on a second, is this the way it needs to be? Actually, who even taught me that, you know? When we go in with the guys often say, you know, you got two hours, what, like what would you want to do? What would blokes want to get up to? And they say all the stuff, you know, like, oh, God, you know, you know, it, mainly video games, porn, sport, talking about girls, that kind of stuff. Then you say, what's the stereotype? And it obviously just further supports everything they've all thrown off the top of their heads. And then we say, all right, you will get five volunteers. Five guys come up and there's a bit of banter and good life. Yeah, 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 I'll go, I'll go. And so we get five guys up and then we pull out of a bag five bottles of red nail polish. And we say, okay, so you're going, now five other guys are going to step up and you're going to apply this nail polish to these guys who volunteered. So, oh, you know, like they're all banter. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, sucked in or whatever. And they end up trying not to do it in a feminine way. So just slapping it on where you're going, no, 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 do it properly. Do it properly, like make sure it's all properly. They don't want to look like they're too delicate, too good at it. The guys that are good at it get a bit of crap. And then, okay, sit down, the guys that put it on, uh, that, that applied it, the ones that have it on stay up, and then they're all, you know, joking around. And then we say, okay, so what you actually volunteered for is you volunteered to leave this on for two weeks no matter what happens. <laughs> and then it just quickly shifts from laughter to anger generally. Uh, and defense, like, no, piss off, not do, not a chance, you know? And yeah. and some of them get really angry. Like, a hundred guys couldn't make me do that. It's not a chance. I'm taking it off now. And and then so why? Like, tell us about it. No, nah, my dad will quit me over the years. So I was like, oh, this is not going to go down. i got footy practice tonight. No, nah, not a chance. And they're, they're all... Party on the weekend. Yeah, just the panic <laughs> as they go through what's on. And... And then we get them to break it down. Do we all agree it's hard for a male in Australia to wear red nail polish two weeks ago? And then what we get to is what's the, who, who wrote the rule? Because they say it's not a guy's thing to do. That's why it's hard. Okay, okay. So who wrote the rule? Like who actually put it in place? And it's, it's hilarious just watching, uh, you know, oh, the fashion people, you know. They wanted to sell the stuff. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, why didn't they say everybody could wear it? They'd sell double. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Donald Trump, you know. And it's just like all of this stuff. People were throwing out these things. But ultimately nobody can think of who made the rule. And it's at that point that the stereotyped idea that I'm a guy and I write my own rules, nobody's the boss of me and blah, 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 actually mm. is shown to be a fallacy. There are rules and you follow them like a well-behaved boy and you're very scared to break them. That's the truth. So who wrote the rules? Because you're following them and they've got you by the balls. You don't want to break them. And at that point, the guys start to go, oh, hang on a second. I don't know about that. So you, what, you're just going to follow all these rules because some you know, other person put them in place and you're just inheriting them and you're just going to follow them. And, and guys start to get a bit pissed about that. And so then they start to do things like, well, stuff, I'm going to cry. I don't care what anybody says. Like, watch me cry. I'll be the first one, you know, and often the alpha flips the norm in the room. 
so I think that we, yeah, we, we do inherit these things and we don't grow up unless we question them is the reality. You, you know, your socialized mindset and, and you need to fit in all of those things until you can question it enough to realize that you're self-authoring. You know, you can author a different reality. And I think that when you look at the world at large, sacred cows are dying quicker and quicker and the world is evolving faster and faster. We need to reinvent ourselves more regularly and, and we need to be more self-authored in our approach. Um, but you can't do that unless you're given conundrums that break the myths that currently hold us and the stereotypes that currently hold us. And that's the crime, I think. So we go through up to, you know, some people more than 20 years, but for most people you've got 15 years of education or so. And why aren't we within that time making sure that our young people question what they've inherited enough to be able to self-author a different reality moving forward? I think that too often they're learning by rote. They're picking up the old and being asked to continue it, even if it is not relevant to the new context that they're living within. And I think we need to ask bigger questions of our education system. It's almost like you're questioning their belief systems. So why, who put them there? Why do they define you? Even if they're not intentionally written and laid down all of a sudden, but there's they're sublime almost they're yeah. they're there and they exist and you got to acknowledge it first before you can then start to change is that correct exactly yeah and, and non-judgmentally because <clears throat> not we're not saying oh there's a stereotype oh how bad is all of that you know because a lot of it's good you know but is it relevant to the lives that you're going to live you know and particularly for these guys like it's only a generation or two ago where women couldn't vote and or work and, and so then you've got this generation where women are rising and about time there's more equality coming into our, you know, we're far from there, but starting. Well, these boys are moving into that reality. And if they pick up old versions of masculinity and old versions of relationship constructs, they're in for a world of pain. And unfortunately, so are the women that they live with. And that's being very bucket maths on the heteronormative relationship. But... There's far more complexity than that. There's also a lot of influences at play, isn't there? I mean, from your home, parents, the community, yep. education, corporates. I mean, it's everywhere we go. Mm. I'd be interested to get your thoughts first on education. I mean, what do you think we need to do better there if assuming that the whole 12 years of school, university for four years, yep. everyone gets a degree, goes into a specialist career. I mean, yep. what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I think we need to have a deep think about, again, I, I think that education is inherited and taken for granted in some ways. So it's kind of like, you know, you're born into the world, okay, well, what do you do? Well, our kids are in preschool at the moment and they're, they're going to go on to primary school and they're going to go on to high school. And you're just going to, oh, yeah, that's, that's what you do. Why? Why do we do it? Why do you spend 15 years in this institutional organisation? What for? Okay, it's to get educated it's educated on what to be able to have a job is it okay or is it to be able to live you know is it actually to be able to live a full life and then you need to ask well is the full life of today the same as we viewed it to be 50 years ago mm. and if it has changed then how much has the education that we're teaching changed and the way we teach so 
I, I just think we don't spend enough time in education. And again, this heaps the burden further on teachers, but we don't spend enough time within our education from primary to high school actually going, do you know how to deal with the, the, the crucible moments of a human life? Do you know how to deal with loss? Do you know how to deal with rejection? You know, grace, you know, how do you deal with rejection with grace? What is identity, you know, and does identity change over time? What is ego? Um, Do you know how to, what is attraction? What is friendship? What is, you know, these big pieces of life that, that, that are the most defining for people in the long run. What are you interested in? What are you not interested in as opposed to being handed a book to read and, but even the mass problems, you're like, at, at what point will you need all this stuff? Yeah, Lisa, I, th- I think that there's definitely something to be said for learning the basics to then let go of the basics and yeah. dance a bit more. So even when we train workshops, we bring in facilitators and we get them to train the script and the structure of a workshop. Now, we never want them to deliver that. We want them to facilitate the life of the room, the actual participants, not stay with the content. But... First, they need to learn that structure so then they can dance off the structure because they've got it kind of in their bones. And I think that there's some of that that we need in education. You need the foundations of, you know, basic maths, basic sciences, basic English, you know, they're important foundations. But what do you apply that to and what life are you going to have? I think that you've got to ask the economic questions of what causes the most pain in our, in our society, you know, like, so if you total up all of the mental health issues, all of the times that boundaries have been crossed, you know, all of those causal factors that generate unhealthy lives, well, if you solve those, we'd probably be better able to, with clear minds, go about educating ourselves and building healthy lives for ourselves. I think that a lot, a lot of those bigger questions are missing. I don't think that we're dealing with – I don't think that we're equipping teachers to deal with them either. So I don't think it's on teachers. It's on all of us, you know, the whole society at a systemic level to to um, do our piece. And it's one of the things that I'll often say if we're out in a country town, we're running this work and, and local blokes are talking about what's really going on in the community, I'll, I'll often say, unfortunately, the truth is that the cavalry is not coming. So if you're expecting the government to suddenly, you know, swing around tomorrow and provide enough mental health services and change the way that your young people are educated, it's not going to happen. So we don't need another hero. We actually need the every man and the every woman at a local level to question the way that we're living and, and, to, and to positively intervene. It's all those small moments of, you know, community acts when you go, you know what, I need to bring the boys together. Because I'm realising that my mates are struggling. I was just talking to somebody out the front after that talk and she, and she was, you know, talking about her son and, and she was saying, you know, he just went up to see his, his friend who they've got a kid, they're about to have a second kid. A bunch of their mates went up to see him and it blew up between him and his missus and he said, it's actually pretty bad. He's actually, I don't think I've actually seen him that way. He's actually in a pretty bad way. And his mum was talking about the conversation they were having and he's like, I think I need to get the boys around. I think I think I need to like we need to intervene and get them on a Zoom call or go back up there and like that's where there's a lot of power. There are very few people like that 
that have that kind of self-starting initiative, self-awareness to be able to read a bad situation like that. It's probably because of his very emotionally intelligent, community-minded mum that I was talking to. But how do we create more of that? Because people want to do those things. Yeah. If you ask people what they want to do, they want to look after the people in their lives, they want to have a positive impact. But not educating them through their primary education or their secondary education on how to do that and just expecting that they're going to have an epiphany with how to make good on that and, and intervene in a positive way in their local community. You know, we educate on everything we want people to do, like brush their teeth and all of that kind of stuff. So why wouldn't we be educating on this and making sure that it becomes habitual? What's the answer to the community education side of things? Is there more programs that need to be done to be run locally um, to get people on board this to help create some headway a bit quicker? Yeah, like, that's a m- massive question, which I wish I wish I had the solution yeah. for. Yeah, I think I think it's everybody in. I think it's everybody in. I th- one of the great things that's happened. You know, we've got a bunch of workshops that we run. We've been building them over time. You know, the more that we think about the holistic nature of a man's life or a woman's life, and what is the toolkit that we think that they might need based on what they're telling us? And so we build out that content. You know, initially we were going into a bunch of schools that were picking up the phone, and then we started going to towns, you know, and we started with Tumut and, you know, a really powerful woman there, local woman, Joe Murrell, noticed that more was needed. There were too many suicides happening locally. She reached out uh, to Gus at the radio station. He picked up the phone to me. We've got to get out there. We went out there and we ran a bunch of workshops in the high schools. We ran a town, a town hall event. Out of the back of that, we realised, hey, this, this is the way to go. Community activation where local people drive the change. And then th- amazing things were happening. The guys that finished the local town hall event, you know, one of them was a, I don't even know the name of it, but he like bought and sold cattle. So he sold a bull, you know, and raised money and put a barbecue around it for to get the guys back together again. A local publican, you know, through his support behind what we were doing, now he's left that job and he's working in mental health in the town. Oh, wow. You know, all of these different initiatives that are kind of sparked off. One of the guys in there worked for Snowy Hydro. He went to Snowy Hydro and said, hey, we need this in our organisation. We now work through Snowy Hydro. Now Snowy Hydro is putting money back into the community, making sure more of the high school workshops happen. Um, yeah, okay. So I think that we need to follow our noses and, and, and dream boldly on what if we could shift whole communities and what if whole communities became whole states, became whole countries. But the more that you dream big, the more you realise you need everybody in. It's mm. systemic. It can't be, you know, one workshop here, one workshop yeah. there. So I, I think that I don't know how to create that, yeah. but I think that when people realise that they are changing their own personal reality, like I felt as a 17-year-old, okay, I can change my own reality. Well, I just naturally then wanted to do that for other people. And then it went from doing that for other people to doing that for other schools, doing that for other communities, and then maybe it can grow beyond that. So I don't know how to go about it, but I think it is following our noses and 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 dreaming big. You've had a fair bit of experience with sporting organisations as well. Yep. Uh, it's obviously a great avenue as well to get in there and have a – discussion and create that education awareness yep. uh, has that been a, a good experience positive experience pretty effective at getting in there and it's been awesome you know like i think that there's a lot of power in the in community currently 
built communities, like a sports club. You know, everybody gets around. So that's great. You've already got a community there. Like that's a really good opportunity to inject some of this stuff so that the level of conversation and the level of mental and emotional support goes up, you know. So that's been really positive. Up to the kind of, you know, the elite level, I think it's really powerful in this country because we need examples. And, you know, we, I sp- speak about that a lot and we do it tomorrow, man. If you've never seen a male cry in a normalised way, then you've got to be the first to break this new ground, be a huge pioneer. Whereas if you've seen your dad cry and hold his tears well and then get on with the next thing, then you're like, oh, okay, like I've got a model of what that looks like. When I do it, I'm not going to feel like the first man that ever stepped on the moon. I'm just going to feel like another one of those guys that has emotions like crazy. So sport in this country is big and, you know, working with the likes of Richmond Footy Club or the Essendon Footy Club or, you know, the NRL and rugby codes, soccer, the A-League teams we've been working with. If those guys exemplify those types of behaviours, they're seen as heroes and it normalises it for a lot of men across the country. And I think that one of the things about working in business and working in, you know, the top of these big corporations and also working in elite sport, working with the army and working in high schools, community groups and machinery sheds and town halls, it's been a really privileged insight into all these layers of society. And I think that we can't argue with the fact that we live in a society that is about uh, economic prosperity, you know, and that is the big reliance that we have on school. It's to make people employable. And so if you can tap into why better emotional intelligence drives better economic outcomes, then doors open and people listen far more. Um, and so if it's got performance out outcomes, then elite sport's going to listen. And I think that, you know, you take the likes of the Richmond Football Club who's had all of the success and when they're asked, hey, what's been the – secret ingredient to your success and they, the, the captain says love and we love each other that's actually been the secret ingredient they struggled through covid because they couldn't touch each other they couldn't have that body-to-body contact and that intimacy that glues them together that makes them play like one and more other teams and so you've got this irony you know where you know deep intimacy and deep interconnection actually makes you very strong very resilient it's a resilient system and, you know, that's been really heartening and, and really exciting to go, okay, you know, if organisations understand deep social cohesion and deep awareness of each other makes us more resilient, ideas travel faster, we solve problems faster, we beat the competition and that's kind of the system that we operate within, you start to open doors more readily. It doesn't become this, oh, nice to have on the, yeah, well, we, we need to do the real business here. I need to get to work and earn some money. Yeah, nice for you to talk about that stuff, but we'll do that afterwards, you know, when we get a moment to breathe. It's like, no, it needs to be integrated into the fabric of the way we live and do business and achieve. It's great to see those sporting clubs and icons in each sporting code taking it on and embracing it and spreading it because, like you said, they're such role models for so many people. Why why is it that rage that most commonly uh, males tend to go to rage or disconnection? when they feel threatened well if you can't go to vulnerability and you can't emote so you're distressed and you've got hurt underneath it, it bottles up and so if anybody tries to sit on a lot of emotion and not express it and not go anywhere with it then you end up getting pretty angry 
frustrated, you know, lashing out and those kind of things. The original workshop that I designed had this visualisation in it where a guy, he thought about a day that made him angry. You know, it's one of those days you wake up on the wrong side, everybody's at you, just, oh, you just get annoyed. And then it builds up and it builds up like it's not in the stomach and then he gets home and kind of snaps. You know, he's flicking the – goes outside, run it off. And he's running down the street and he thinks of all the people that have annoyed him during that day, all of the people in his life that annoy him, all of the guys that annoy him, and then the one guy that annoys him the most, makes him the most angry. And he thinks around this corner I'm going to see him. He's going to be there and I'm going to have it out with him, whatever they imagine that to be. So they're bolting and they're, oh, my God, this whole day and I'm going to have it out. They come around the corner he's not there. And it kind of the music breaks through. And then there's this reflection on underneath all anger lies hurt. And really this person let you down. They weren't there when they said they were going to be there. They didn't live up to what they promised you. They let you down and they hurt you. And if you could express what you've really got to say without the anger, what would you say? If you knew that they would hear it, you know, it would be a miracle. They would hear it. They'd fully hear it. What would you say? And it's really interesting what people say. A large majority of the guys talk about their dads, you know. It's like this common theme across, you know, delivering those things. But I think that when you don't have outlets of vulnerability and I'm hurt, like this is hurting me, I just want to cry and I need help, I need those things, then it bottles up. And so it comes out in ways that you can retain power because men are powerful. They're not vulnerable, they're powerful. And so whatever looks powerful, that's going to be the way that is okay for me to express. So I can hit something, oh, you know, because I keep my power. You know, I need to let out this steam and this emotion, but I get to keep my power. And like I said in the talk just before, for a 14-year-old in a public school, that can actually work for you socially. Um, you know, it can actually give you some of the things that you want. You know, you might get the girl and get the respect of the guys and you kind of fulfil the stereotype. As a 30-year-old in a kitchen with two kids screaming, you've had no sleep and you are in a challenging moment in your life with all of this emotion bundling up, if you go to that well-worn pattern in your head and it says use your fists, it ends in disaster. It yeah. destroys lives. And so, again, I just think it becomes about what you've seen. How many movies go, oh, that guy's crying in a healthy moment with other people, you know, witnessing his tears, processing his emotion well. You know, you just, you just don't yeah. see that exemplified or practised. The vulnerability and the emotional intelligence, which seems to be the key things is tools, I guess, that people can equip themselves with, yep. mainly males, because it tends to be the things that we find most difficult to tap into. What's the future life for you? Where are you going to go with tomorrow, man? What's the plan? Tell us about what lies ahead. Wow. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, this, this year uh, we have a 750 workshops booked, um, likely to run 1,000 in this calendar year. All around Australia. All around Australia. I never thought that we would run that many workshops, but, you know, we hired five people, five new facilitators at the end of last year. We'll probably bring on another couple by mid-year. I get scared if I think too far ahead because it was never an intent to have an organisation this large. And I'm learning, as my wife is, who's co-founded the organisations, we're learning how to do this. Like, how do you do this? 
we've always kind of followed our gut on what feels right and so it's always grown fairly easily now it's been really painful learning to lead businesses in the first couple of years um but the success of the business has been fairly it's kind of built its own success because i think we've done things in, in the right time not forced them to happen where where is next like i said you know tomorrow man happened and we created that and then it felt like hey tomorrow woman has to be here we can't do this in isolation then it felt like as we got tomorrow man tomorrow woman we got to bring them together you know we need to create these environments for the conversations to happen about what a relationship is you know what is the gender spectrum what is it going to look like tomorrow what's it been in the past what's going to look like tomorrow tomorrow architects He's going really strong, you know. So we're doing a lot of work with corporate leaders because they have a big vote on our society and the way it's shaped. And so we're doing that work with sporting leaders, with corporate leaders, with leaders in the army and the likes. We want to continue doing that because we want to understand the whole spectrum. And there's a huge demand in industry, you know. So we're doing a lot of the Tomorrow Man-related work throughout male-dominant industries where they want to better shape their cultures for safety and performance outcomes and like. So I think that we're going to continue to build towards looking at the activated community model and how you can empower communities to author their own reality going forward. We often come in as an intervention and a kind of an insight into what it could look like and feel like, whether that's for a group of teenage boys in their school or a group of adult males in their community or a leadership team in an organisation. But what could the whole community look like? What are the stats that we'd love to see changing? What are the things that would make people go, hey, I want to go and live in Tumex. I'm hearing about these things. And so I'm motivated to take my money, my effort, my work. I'm going to, I'm going to put it there and I'm going to do those things. So, I, mate, I don't know what that, lo- I don't know what that looks yeah. like. And I'm, and to be honest, I'm humbled and excited, uh, and I think Paige, my wife, would say the same, by what the organisation itself is doing because yeah. we want it to have a mind of its own. It's not up to us, you know. There's 25 passionate people who are out there in the community and they're getting ideas and seeing what really needs to change and taking action on those, going, okay, this is what's next for the organisation. certainly sounds exciting. Yeah, uh, it, exciting and daunting. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think it's great. And I think the fact that, you know, the whole point of this is reinventing man. It seems to be so rethinking it, redesigning it. If you could do it again Mm. uh, and deliberately and intentionally do it, what would it look like? And actually questioning the current belief system, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately that is what tomorrow stands for in, in the brand names. So tomorrow, our mission as an organization, all of the brands is create tomorrow and create cutting edge training environments, educational environments, where people can build the emotional tools and muscles and awareness that they need to be the author of their individual and collective tomorrow. That's ultimately what we want to kind of get behind a bear tailwind for, for people. Now, vulnerability is a part of that. Emotional intelligence is a part of it, but also self-regulating your emotion and being able to tough out some difficult situations um, is also a part of it. It's about range. And, and for Tomorrow Man, that's what we're focused on. No man should miss out. We want to end harm to men uh, harming themselves and harming others. 
and we believe that range, emotional range, having a full toolkit for a full life is a big answer to that. You know, I want to be able to cry. I want to be able to rock a dance floor. I want to be able to suck it up on the day that I need to suck it up, but I don't want to have to do that for the rest of my life because it's just not realistic or healthy. Is there a definition of arriving for that purpose? Is there a definition of the outcome uh, that you're measuring it by? Or is it continually to work away at it and hopefully the conversations will change, the belief systems will change over time? Is is it the suicide rate of males? Is it being able to uh, not not saying everything needs to be measured, but what? How are you? Have you thought about that? And is that something that? Yeah, as I said, like the further we go, the more that we have the courage to think more systemically about the change that we want to create. You know, I think at the beginning we didn't have the confidence to really believe we could shift the system, and so it was more about. I want these guys that I've got that have been willing to give me their time for two to three hours, I want them to walk out of here with better skills to live better lives. I think some of our facilitators still think that way. They're still not kind of like daring to think at the system systemic level. We've started to think about what's the problem we want to solve rather than the problem that we want to look after. And we've kind of started to settle on this idea in a tomorrow man capacity of ending men causing harm to themselves and others. Now, what does that look like? Yes, it looks like the suicide stats. It looks like the violent stats. Self-harming. Self-harming, all, all of those pieces. Now, then you say, well, what's the vehicle? And I think that the, the kind of nirvana, like ideal, like where we would love to be, is that all people know how to unlearn, learn and relearn in their lives. Because as I said, I think if we look around, our world is transforming, you know, the way we work, the way we live, the way we view gender, the way we view equality, things are changing so rapidly, we need to be able to reinvent ourselves. And I think that's the piece that we're most focused on, getting people the ability to objectify and look back, okay, this is what I've inherited. How's that going for me? Mm. What life do I want? Uh, okay, well, maybe it's worth me trying some new things, not an either or, but an and, just building some new capabilities so that I can live more of the whole life that I actually really want. That's the nirvana that everybody in society knows how to evolve, you know, reinvent themselves when life demands it and things change so that they can have a better quality of life with the people that they love and live with. Mate, sounds incredible. How can people get hold of you? I mean, the easiest way, I've just been having a few of these conversations, but because there's different brands, there's Tomorrow Man, there's Tomorrow Woman, Tomorrow Architects, Tomorrow Films, it depends on the engagement. So the best way is if people kind of relate to one of those brands and say, oh, I'd, I'd love to do, something, you know, I'd love to engage on this, then it's to go through those websites, the Instagram and, and Facebook pages. and Let's Google Tomorrow Man or something. Tomorrow yep, Woman. Tomorrow Man, okay. Tomorrow Woman. Google those and it'll pop up, hopefully pretty high uh, in the Google list. And the same for Tomorrow Architects. Tom, is there any, any other words you want to say in closing? I think it's been really insightful from where I sit. I think it's great. The work you're doing, obviously you're a great person doing great things with a, a great organisation. And I think it's truly needed. And it's something that I'm glad someone's got it as a priority out there and actually, you know, getting rubber on the road and, and making stuff happen. But are there any th words in closing you'd like to say? 
I, I, it's probably just that thing of not waiting for heroes. So, you know, not waiting for somebody. I, I think that too often we remove the levers of power from ourselves. So we're kind of waiting for the government. We're waiting for education. We're waiting for the families to pick up their load or we're waiting for the teachers to pick up their load or the psychologist at the school or somebody else, you know, like, and, and sometimes that's just self-protective because if I really believe I can change the community, that's daunting, like, you know, really quite daunting. So I think the, the last thing that I would say is in your life, I really believe we need – I think the power actually exists with the everyday man, the everyday woman and the everyday young people. How do I make change in my local area? and find better ways to be more connected, more supportive to my people. And I think that I don't have the answers on that. So I learn from the guys I'm out there with, you know, and one of the things I've learned, like one of the farmers that we were working with out in Narromine, he said, you know, I, my, my tractor pretty much runs itself now. It didn't used to do that, but now I've just got all this time. I sit on the tractor and I just kind of like go along. So he said, so I've got time to just mark in the calendar something really bad happens to one of my friends and that's a bad day for them. They lost their dad or mom or something happened and if something good happens for them. And he says, so I've got this calendar and, you know, I just shoot out a text message to the people on that day that are in my community that, you know, hey, this must be a hard day for you and I just want you to know that, you know, I'm thinking of you. He said, you wouldn't believe how many people have sent back saying you're the only person that remembers this day. And I was like, what? simple thing you know so, so many people would want to do that yeah. but it's about habit and it's about somebody sharing the recipe this guy from the country that drives his tractor gave me his recipe all right well now i use that so every year i've got a calendar not exactly the way he does it but a version of it and i you know reach out to people based on that and i, I remind myself give myself a system to do it I've learned so many of those little recipes from so many people across the country that are everyday things so that people f- are like, oh, I'd love to. I'll put that in in, yeah. in place. Like that, That's not too hard to do. I can do that and I can cause positive change. So I would just say look for the small ways that you can cause an impact and don't be surprised if it cascades into a bigger impact. If you don't hear people going, oh, I pass that on. Pass on the recipe. If you find a good recipe – for causing positive change or something, pass it on and you would be surprised at how fast it might build. We need localised community initiative and I think that will end up forcing upwards, you know. So if you're an every man, you're an every woman, like just change your patch and and it'll spread. Well, Tom, I think that's uh, wonderful words just to say in closing. I don't have – I think it's been a really insightful and a wonderful conversation. I appreciate the work you're doing out there, the leadership you're taking uh, and what your organisation is doing and looking forward to hearing more about tomorrow, man, woman, people in the future and and all the great stuff you're up to. Cheers, thanks. It's been an awesome chat. Definitely uh, not where I thought it was going to go. And, yeah, I feel pretty humbled actually, you know, to be having this conversation. So I I hope it's worthwhile listening for anybody who stayed on for this long. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership 
at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.